Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat, powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. Hello health champions, welcome back to another episode of A Slice of Health. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, as you all know, endometriosis. And we have the amazing Dr. Nitsu Bajakal, who is an obstetrician and gynecologist with over 35 years of experience. And she's going to be talking to us also about how to use a plant-based diet to improve your health, to improve your lifestyle, and also to improve gynecology outcomes. Welcome to the episode. Thank you. Thank you, Mo. And I'm so excited to be talking to you, uh, especially about a topic that uh, really affects a lot of women, remains undiagnosed for years, uh, and causes a lot of distress. Um, and so I would. it's a topic close to my heart. I um, have had a lot of patients, a lot of experience, both uh, on, in the medical and surgical field, but also more recently with lifestyle medicine. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so, so happy to have you on. Tell us a lot about yourself and how <laughs> you came into being an obstetrician and gynecologist as well. So I actually um, was born in India and... Um, I didn't, re- my, my sister and brother were both doctors, um, so, and they were a bit older than me, and I thought, oh, that sounds quite cool, uh, and although I was more sporty, I thought, I, I will do medicine. I was very lucky. I got into the top medical schools, and I went to Pondicherry, where, um, which is a lovely um, medical college near, right near the sea. I met my husband at the age of 18. Uh, we were, of, con- of course, not married at that time. And very quickly, I realized that um, obstetrics and gynecology was a specialty for me because I couldn't find that mix of surgery, which I loved, Mm. medicine, which I loved, and psychology. Mm. Uh, And so I knew that either I would become a GP or or an OBGYN, but surgery is something that I really loved. So that was the path I took. And 35 years later, I just still find it just as thrilling. Um, love it. Uh, and then uh, my part took me to do post-graduation uh, in Delhi, in India. Uh, and again, in the, one of the top medical schools, all in the Institute of Medical Sciences. I was really happy. Uh, but we were 28 uh, by the time we finished every single degree that was there in India. So we thought we had itchy feet. So we thought we'll travel around a little bit uh, abroad before we return to India. And 29 years later, we are still here <laughs> in England. Um, and so I came here, finished my training. I did a fellowship in um, minimal access surgery. So one of my big interests is keyhole uh, mm-hmm. surgery. And I used to do robotics operating as well. Mm-hmm. I gave up obstetrics about a year ago um, so that I could focus more on lifestyle medicine. And so over the years, I have always enjoyed teaching and education, both for the public. So I set up Women for Women's Health in 2014, which is a voluntary organization, so that I can empower women and the community and men uh, and people from all uh, over to 
sort of educate themselves because you know there's no point going in for any medical procedure or any medications unless you know the pitfalls and the benefits and rather than relying on somebody else my uh, strap line often is nobody knows your body better than you uh, so um, I have been very active uh, on the teaching front both for medical students and trainees and um, for the public and in about um, around 2000 and two maybe a little bit earlier uh, when I was about 38, uh, I um, started going through an early menopause and I didn't realize that it was stress, uh, as most doctors, you're always in denial and <laughs> you're always too busy and I had two young daughters, uh, a dog and a husband who was also very busy So, and we had no family here in England. Uh, so it was always a juggle between everything. We were both very ambitious, both very career driven. So um, I realized that I was really quite suffering quite a lot. But then uh, what happened was um, my younger daughter came home and decided that I was already vegetarian. I had stopped eating meat in, um, just after my uh, younger daughter was born in 1992. But I was still consuming dairy and uh, she came home and decided that she was going to give up all animal products. Uh, so suddenly eating sausages and chicken, she went to eating uh, <laughs> uh, plants. Yeah. And I found a huge benefit in my symptoms, but I didn't put it down to food because I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought it was coincidence as usual because we had never been taught nutrition in medical school, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. um, life went on until I started realizing that I was feeling much better, much more energetic than I ever did before. Uh, and also when I talked to my patients about it, just telling them to eat a bit better, they were finding a lot of improvement. Mm -hmm. But I became quite angry somewhere down the line when I suddenly realized that there was actually a wealth of information out there about plant-based eating and all hundreds, 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 thousands of peer-reviewed studies. And I hadn't been made aware of this at all. And I had to find this out on my own. Mm -hmm. So I've made it my mission to empower women. And that's how Women for Women's Health came about. And then realized that the diet that is actually the best or kindest for our health is the kindest for the planet and is the kindest for the animals that I was trying to help. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was a really win-win situation. But upset as a doctor whose main role is to help patients you know that i was failing them not having known this information because it's up to the person then to go and do what they want but if i empower them that information they would have to be the same situation as me that they would have to go hunting for this information you see so um that's how all this came about and then um a whole lot of things happened and Suddenly, lifestyle medicine, um, uh, there was, there's a board exam that's uh, run by the American College uh, of Lifestyle Medicine that opened it up uh, two, two years ago, I think, or maybe two years ago, um, to uh, UK and Australia. And I was the first, um, uh, there were about 29 people who sat the exam, a few GP, mostly GPs, some physiotherapists, some nutritionists, and my husband and I were the first two specialists. He's orthopedics, back surgeon, wow. and me, um, 
uh, a gynecologist and so we are both board certified and my daughter who's a nutritionist she's also a American College or International Board Lifestyle Medicine board certified so um, it's been a fantastic addition to uh, my toolkit so I can help women because some people will always need surgery yeah. but if you can actually avoid reaching that stage where you might need medication and surgery hey what can be better than that especially if you're doing it by eating not counting calories not having to worry about putting on weight and eating delicious food i mean for me that is a no-brainer so that's where i'm at i've got a very active website lots of information and i love cooking so i put a lot of recipes because often people want to make the change but they don't know how to yes. so teaching people how to transition uh, to a plant-based way of eating that understanding that any little change is actually better than no change is all you need to do because people freak out they get really scared if you tell them you're never going to eat a cheeseburger again so you say yes you just do this for three weeks or just take breakfast and change it that's all you need to do and then once they understand how well they feel they think wow I, my husband he took 15 years because he just didn't he thought he was eating really healthily he had given up meat at the same time as me but he was eating eggs and fish uh, and he thought they were really healthy and he became diabetic. He tried all kinds of diets and he wasn't getting better. And then he saw folks on knives and I had gone to work and I came back and I said, uh, and he said, oh, I'm going to become, I'm going to join you. I'm going to become plant-based. I said, wow, what did I say 15 years later? Uh, and he said, no, you didn't say anything. I actually saw a movie. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> But, you know, he reversed his diabetes within uh, about two or three months. Um, it was supposed to be pre-diabetes, but, but I think he was pretty diabetic. If you look at his results and he dropped his cholesterol, I don't know, from something like 300 down to 130. Uh, and he now just looks at me and says, why did you not force me? This is the best way I can eat what I want, how much I want. He used to look at food before and put on weight. He lost about 25 kilos. So that took a little longer, but the diabetes went first. So amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And you know, what you just said about, you know, your husband's experience, it's something that I try to remind people a lot, especially in the pre-diabetes stage, is that once you get sort of this warning sign, there's a lot that you can do in your lifestyle that can prevent you from getting into that diabetes totally. stage. And you know, even now we're finding evidence that even people with a formal diagnosis of diabetes on medication can go into what we call remission of their diabetes. And oh, I've got so many stories. I cannot tell you. Diabetes is old news now. Yeah. Diabetes you can reverse pretty or at least reduce your medication hugely. And if you're on insulin, you can reduce those, uh, but always with the help of a specialist who understands. Yeah. And so plant-based health professionals is a wonderful website uh, in the UK where you can actually access doctors who also understand the role of plant-based eating and can guide you because you can't do these things on your own. Uh, and so that's important. But yes, there is there are some very big, wonderful people in the space, you know, um, Dean Ornish, Dr. Neil Barnard, um, uh, Dr. Michael Greger, uh, Dr. Michael Clapper. And so there are a lot of people uh, and Dr. Milton Mills. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are doing great, great work. And all one has to do is just look for that. And so I put a whole lot of resources in my website as well so that people can actually understand because, you know, these are things that you can help yourself with because especially now with um, the COVID-19, we know that people of color, 
uh, and black people especially are dying in higher numbers if you are even have a bmi of more than 30 forget you know morbidly obese you have you know a much higher chance and whether you are um, pakistani bangladeshi indian or black um, you have anywhere between a 10 to 50% higher chance of mortality compared to the Caucasian population. And then on top of that, if you have front-facing job, if you are a key worker, you are overweight, you are basically, you know, inviting COVID into your life and vitamin D deficiency as well. So it's really important to understand that lifestyle has a role to play from the time you are in your mother's womb, yeah. you know, because of epigenetics and what you eat is going to influence your grandchildren's uh, outcomes. So there's a lot, a lot of information out there that people need to know. Yeah. It's simplified. You don't have to make it complicated. You know, it's just very simple. And maybe we can talk about what uh, I normally recommend, but we'll talk about endometriosis and then we can go into that maybe. Yeah, definitely. And so coming into endometriosis, you know, it's one of these things that people have a really long um, sort of journey from onset of symptoms to then finding, getting a diagnosis and also perhaps because the, the current way of diagnosing formally is by a surgical procedure, which is laparoscopy. Um, and people do struggle quite a lot you know with endometriosis with pain and you know trial of hormones different hormones here and there to try to regulate the periods and try to reduce the pain and then also quite a lot of painkillers and you know quite a lot so what can you tell us about endometriosis um before we then get into sort of trying to manage symptoms with with a plant-based diet yes so endometriosis is actually much more common than we think. Mm -hmm. And we think that 10% of the population may actually be having endometriosis. What is actually the condition? It's a condition where every month when you menstruate, your, the blood comes out of your uh, womb, the lining gets shed and it comes out vaginally. But some of that blood may go and stick itself outside, either through retrograde menstruation, which means the blood goes through the fallopian tube, sticks itself on the ovaries, on the back of your womb, on bowel, or there may be other mechanisms at which the blood may transfer itself to your lungs or your nose or to your scar tissue. And we know women after a cesarean section have higher chance of having endometriosis. So what happens every month, every month when you bleed, you, um, the endometriotic deposits also bleed. And so that's what causes the pain. And so that's why we know that pregnancy is meant to be, uh, to dampen the endometriosis. And so the reason why endometriosis is a modern condition is if you think about it a hundred years ago, uh, before that, most women would have start their period, say at the age of 10, 11, 12, uh, and then they would have a baby by 13, uh, uh, breastfeed for two, three years, then have another baby by uh, 16. And either they'd be dead in childbirth or they would have 10, 12, 15 children uh, and probably would have had about four or five periods in their lifetime. Yeah. Okay, by the time they reach menopause, if they live till menopause, most mm -hmm. women died by 35. Mm -hmm. Now, if uh, you imagine the modern woman, they have either no children, one, two, three children. And so they start their period at the age of say 12 or 13. And by the time you stop your period, which is generally universal all around, around the age of 51, you have between 450 to 500 periods in your lifetime. So having periods is not normal. It's not natural. People often think it's a natural thing to have periods. But actually when you are, uh, if you were 
meant to be living you know a couple of hundred years ago you would have been just either pregnant or or lactating now we're not saying people should rush out and start having children because obviously that comes with its own complications but um, it's important to understand that this continuous onslaught of periods is what then triggers endometriosis in susceptible people. So there may be a family history and things like that. But lifestyle then can play a big role as well. So the problem with diagnosing endometriosis is a lot of women anyway have painful periods, either because of their diet or because of other underlying conditions. And so you go see your doctor and say, yeah, it's quite common, do something, take some painkillers, off you go. And when actually they may have underlying endometriosis already. Now, they either that or they have bowel symptoms. And so you may be diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome. So either you are not being diagnosed with endometriosis or you may be diagnosed with some other pelvic pain or irritable bowel syndrome. And so you don't get a diagnosis. Now, the important thing to understand is that our, the American uh, society, Fertility Society, has uh, classified endometriosis into four grades. And so you have the minimal and the mild endometriosis, a grade one or two, and then you have the moderate or the severe. And people often think that from the minimal or mild, you go on to become moderate or severe. But actually in my 40 years, 35 years of experience and 40 years having joined medical school, the thinking now is that it's actually more to do with you are either you stay in the minimal mild group or you stay in the moderate severe group. Mm. And so, Early diagnosis is important because fertility can be affected, chronic pelvic pain, you know, you can miss work, uh, there are more uh, uh, work days uh, missed by women because of painful periods and endometriosis is an is a important cause. And you look normal from outside. So what happens is nobody believes you, yeah. okay? And so it's not like having, uh, and I've got an a, a article that I wrote for the Huffington Post, you know, is endometriosis a fate as bad as cancer? And if you actually talk to people who suffer from endometriosis, you know, they don't have any sympathy from anybody. They have to get on and carry on doing all this stuff, but they are crippled with pain, often in the lead up for 10 days before their period, during their period, they may have a few days of uh, respite and then back again. So if you're going to be on the pill, um, so the hormonal contraceptive pill, the combined oral contraceptive pill, or the progesterone-only pill, or the Mirena coil are very useful if you're going to use contraception or if you're having heavy painful periods and you're not sexually active even, because what it does, it helps to normalize your hormones. But the combined pill should not be taken with a break every month, like the, the recommendation, because there is no medical indication to have a withdrawal bleed every month. So if you want to reduce your chance further of endometriosis, if you're going to be on the pill, you take it back to back so that your hormone levels are stabilized. You don't keep having these fluctuations and you take it back to back and you have a break whenever your body tells you to. In the sense, you can go for three months without a break, six months without a break, a year without a break. There's no harm from that. Not everybody wants to take the pill, the combined pill, and or if you've had children and you want to, or you can't tolerate the pill, you might use the Marina coil, which is a progesterone coil or the progesterone implant or the injection. But doing nothing once you have a diagnosis of endometriosis can be really quite hard. And the only way so far is to see somebody, a specialist like myself, uh, and you have an ultrasound scan. Sometimes the ultrasound scan will show chocolate cysts, which are uh, 
collection in the ovary of blood that look like dark chocolate when we operate. That's why they got this name called chocolate cysts. Uh, but they're basically endometriomas and severe or moderate cases will show that on ultrasound scan in some situations. Or you may see on an MRI scan that the bowel is not moving so freely, uh, the womb, uh, the uterus is stuck uh, to the bowel. You might see some of this uh, scarring and, and things. But in a lot of uh, girls with a minimal or mild endometriosis, they're having all the pain, but they, you can't see anything on ultrasound scan. So the only way of diagnosing and treating is through keyhole surgery. But it is an invasive procedure. You don't want to subject yourself to it unless you really need it. So that is why it's so important for women to understand the role of hormonal contraception along with surgery. But there's a lot of stuff you can do right from the time before you even start your periods. And so that is what I'm trying to educate women. And once you have a diagnosis of endometriosis, you can also make huge changes in your lifestyle, in your diet, which can either save you from a, my knife or it can make um, getting pregnant easier or it may completely mean that you don't have surgery at all. So, or, or come off your medications, you know? So it's important to understand that lifestyle medicine is not alternative medicine. Yeah. Okay. So, but lifestyle medicine uses Western medicine. It walks alongside Western medicine. So you're doing surgery, you're using medication, but you, when it's appropriate, but you're also using lifestyle medicine because there's no different diet for diabetes and no different diet for endometriosis or no different diet for breast cancer or Alzheimer's or prostate cancer. It's the same diet for whether you're a child or a man or a woman or transgender, doesn't matter. You have the same diet. And so this is important for us to understand that whatever your um, the color of our skin, whatever our gender preference, it doesn't matter. The diet remains the same. And that is important to understand because endometriosis can leave you with scarring, with early, lots of repeated um, surgery, open hysterectomy, open surgery, needing, leading up to a hysterectomy where you remove the uterus and sometimes the tubes and ovaries as well to relieve the pain. But the pain often just doesn't go away because your bowel is scarred. You may end up with, you know, having a, a colostomy where you actually have an opening uh, where your bowel has to be cut as well. So it has got a lot of repercussions and, you know, we can try and do other things that will help us. That's all I'm saying. It's not a hundred percent, but it's certainly something that we must put as doctors information for our patients so that they can be guided. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think, you know, before we started the episode, we were both having a chat about how the curriculum for, you know, medical training is so is the the nutrition information is so scanty there's hardly anything in there um and so our understanding of that even when we're counseling patients and talking to them about their health and their diet is just there's just not there's just not enough and even sometimes even people with the right mindset sometimes also don't know where to direct patients to where right. the right information is as well you're very right, Mo, because in medical school, most people are just taught what is a calorie and how many calories does a gram of fat or protein uh, or um, carbohydrate have. That is the limit. So people, uh, doctors feel uh, inadequate and underconfident to discuss. 
but that's not an excuse. You see, when you have a heart attack, if you come to see an OBGYN uh, or a GP, you're not going to say, oh, you know, I feel underconfident, so I'll turn you away. You send them to the right people. And that is what we have to understand, that we have dietitians who we can train in plant-based nutrition. Nutritionists, we can educate ourselves. There are lifestyle medicine doctors like myself. There are GPs who understand lifestyle medicine. So there is places where people can be uh, directed. Plus, we need to bring it into the curriculum because it is really important to have a basic understanding. Nobody's asking the ordinary doctor to make diet plans. Nobody's asking for that. All we're saying is know that there is help available for a, remember 80% of what you see more in your surgery and 80% of what I see as a specialist is chronic lifestyle conditions yeah. okay and so is polycystic ovarian syndrome endometriosis endometrial cancer uh, fibroids putting on weight menopause these are all the gynae side of things literally there's no gynae condition that does not benefit painful periods same thing in the GP practice, diabetes, hypertension, um, uh, heart disease, you know, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, all these things. And all these things can be helped by eating the right way, sleeping the right way, stressing less, all yeah. these things. So we'll talk about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, how it can help with endometriosis. But it's important to understand that as doctors, we have a duty of care to inform people whether we feel confident about it or not our duty is to provide the information so that the person can go away and that's the beauty of a lifestyle medicine you as the patient are in the driving seat not your doctor you decide how much of this you want to take on and so that way you can bring in acupuncture functional medicine um, uh, western uh, modern medicine everything can come in there's a place for everything but you decide yeah. and that is the difference while Conventional medicine, you know, the doctor decides, yes, you need a laparoscopy. Yes, you need the pill. No, I need to give you all the information. I need to guide you, but you need to then take the final step rather than doctor knows best. No, you know best for your body. You need to get all the information though, because if you don't, you will make the wrong choices. And of course, if you just look on uh, Google or anywhere, you get very confused because there is so much of so many myths so you have to follow the science it has to be evidence-based and that is the definition of lifestyle medicine it is evidence-based therapeutic approaches that uses lifestyle to prevent treat and in some cases reverse lifestyle conditions 80 percent of what we see in our practice is lifestyle related mm -hmm. so you know we really need to wake up and start doing this making the difference yes definitely and so you just mentioned about the pillars of lifestyle medicine so how can we apply those pillars to endometriosis for better outcomes very good so there are six pillars that um, are there for lifestyle medicine and we will do it from the reverse so that um, nutrition is the biggest umbrella yes. uh, but if you have the six pillars there is a, a nutrition there is sleep there is stress management. There are um, avoiding risky substances or risky behavior. Uh, there is uh, exercise. 
and there is maintaining positive social connections. Mm. Okay. Now we know that each of these has a role to play in all chronic conditions, including endometriosis. So because with endometriosis, you can often tend to be uh, low in mood and depressed, having friends and family that care for you, you reach out, you do community, uh, be active in the community, whether it's doing charity work or having lots of friends, it we know will help with overall mood and makes you take better choices. Then we come to uh, avoiding risky substances. We know that smoking and alcohol are all pro-inflammatory states. So drugs, smoking, alcohol are big no-nos, really, if you want to lead an optimal health. Yes, if you want to have a celebrated glass of uh, champagne uh, on somebody's birthday, that's not a problem. But really, there is no safe limit of alcohol, whether you're pregnant or not. Yeah. So avoiding risky behaviors. So, you know, important that you always use condoms, whether you're on the pill or the coil or anything in any new relationship, because getting an infection like chlamydia or gonorrhea can leave you with long-standing pelvic pain and subfertility, and that can make endometriosis much worse. So avoiding risky behavior, having positive social networks and connections. Mm -hmm. The next thing is stress management. We know that stress is very intimately related to cortisol and, and the way you sleep. So when you, good stress is very good. So, you know, when I'm coming up to do the podcast, I might be a little bit anxious and that's good stress because it makes, motivates you. But if you're having a, a, a partner who's violent or you're having bad work colleagues or you're having uh, lots of other stress from your health, then that's going to disturb your sleep. And so we know that stress will basically cause hormonal imbalance, estrogen and progesterone, uh, cortisol, the melatonin, the prolactins, all these will get affected. And during, with the help, with stress, what then happens is that you can't focus and then you make bad choices again. So you can see how stress is really important. And why is sleep so important? Because when you don't sleep, as doctors, we know when we do night shifts and as an OBGYN, I know that. So what happens is that you basically have cortisol levels that are up the spout, you, your melatonin levels don't come down. And uh, so you end up getting, having poor sleep. So you get very stressed and that makes conditions like endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome and menopause and painful periods much worse. Mm -hmm. So we must sleep seven to nine hours uh, and you know, for everybody, including uh, somebody who's suffering from endometriosis, you need to have good quality sleep. There's no point just lying in bed. Bed is meant only for sex and for uh, sleeping. Okay. So you need to be able to sleep seven to nine hours. If you sleep longer, that's been shown to be not so good for you. If you sleep less, again, it's not so good for you. Your uh, chromosomes and your telomeres can get damaged. Your cell repair happens during your sleep. Your DNA repair happens during your sleep. Your hormones balance during your sleep. So if you are not sleeping, the endometriosis will go out of this, uh, control and that will increase your stress levels as well. So sleep is really important. And I have lots of tips on how one can sleep, having dark curtains, wearing an eye patch if you need to, listening to soft music if you need to, no television, no screen for at least 45 minutes before, cool shower, a nice cup of chamomile tea a few hours before uh, so that you're not rushing to the toilet in the middle of the night, little things like that, okay? So sleep is important, avoiding risky substances, smoking and alcohol and drugs, uh, risky behavior, positive social network, really, really important. Exercise is really important as well. And that, by that, I don't mean going and pounding things at the gym. Okay, you can if you want to, because if you're at a, um, but having a standing desk, 
moving naturally, whether you go for a walk, whether it's gardening, you need to be aiming with endometriosis, not for the 150 minutes of moderate intensity. I would recommend 300 minutes because that's what actually has been shown to make a difference. So that's about an hour a day, okay? Of which two sessions should be weight training because you need to build your bone and muscle during this time. So it's really important that resistance training, high interval intensity training. So if you're walking, walk as fast as you can for 30 seconds, then slow down. If you're running, run as fast as you can for until you're out of breath because you want your heart rate to go up mm. because that normalizes the hormones. And in endometriosis, your hormones tend to be all over the place. So exercise is really important. So a rough way is one hour per day. Okay. But that means that you're doing gardening, um, housework, walking around, running up the stairs, avoid taking the lift, simple, simple things which can make a big difference to your pain. Because we know that girls who suffer from painful periods, if they exercise in the lead up to the period and exercise during the period and do yoga and, and things that will relieve stress and Pilates for core strengthening, we know that their periods become much less painful because the prostaglandins that are released by this endometrial tissue gets washed away in your blood supply so that you actually have relief from the pain because prostaglandins can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that often accompanies these painful periods, but also causes pain and heaviness. So exercise is really important. It should not be something to be done just on weekends. It's fine. You can be a weekend warrior, but really you want to factor it in into your day, you know, walking to work, cycling to work with a helmet, <laughs> you know. So things like that is really key. And then you have the most important uh, of the six pillars, so the exercise, risky substances, uh, good social network, stress and sleep. And then the sixth most important one is nutrition. And the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, based on thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed studies, is now very clear that one should be eating a predominantly whole food plant-based diet, which means that your diet should be chock full of fruit, not whole fruit because it comes with the fiber. Fiber is what keeps, traps the estrogen in your gut. And so you don't have all these high estrogen levels because endometriosis like fibroids and like polycystic ovarian syndrome is a high and breast cancer are all high estrogen um, states. So you want to be eating lots of fresh fruit, lots of vegetables, especially green leafy vegetables, which are full of nitrates, which will dilate your arteries. So broccoli, broccoli sprouts and kale and uh, spinach and beet. Uh, greens and things like that. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, which means black rice, wild rice, red rice, uh, brown rice. These are uh, quinoa, uh, millet, uh, spelt, rye. You want to eat grains as intact as possible. Mm -hmm. So porridge oats, you know, porridge groats. These, is, these are grains that you want to include in your diet. Potatoes, sweet potatoes, complex starchy carbohydrates. We know keep you full for longer, reduce your blood sugar, reduce balance out your hormones. So it's really important that you eat potatoes, sweet potatoes, intact whole grains, and a lot of legumes, which are beans, beans like chickpeas, kidney beans, soya, uh, lots of um, uh, dals and lentils and pulses, lots of herbs and spices, and a small handful of unsalted nuts, walnuts, um, cashew nuts and all kinds of nuts. Um, so you want to try and eat, especially if you have no weight to lose, you want to eat a normal whole food plant-based diet. If you have endometriosis and you're overweight, you want to try and eat 
more low fat. So you don't want to have too many avocados and too many nuts in your diet because that can then cause a little bit more inflammation. Um, soya is really important. All studies have shown, especially big study in Japan showed that women who eat soya regularly in the form of miso, edamame beans, tofu, tempeh, uh, soya milk, have the lowest risk of moderate and severe endometriosis. We also know from the nurses' health study, the Harvard study as well, the, that um, I think it looked at something like 70 or 90,000 nurses uh, that women who ate red meat regularly had a much higher chance of developing endometriosis compared to women who ate it very infrequently. Okay, Chicken was also uh, important, but not as statistically significant, but also worsened the chance of endometriosis. And so we know that citrus fruits and green leafy vegetables positively reduce your risk of endometriosis. Uh, and while, for example, alcohol increases the chance of fibroids. And now often when you have endometriosis, you also will have fibroids. You also have adenomyosis. Adenomyosis is the cousin of endometriosis. So it's where the lining of the uterus digs deep into the muscle wall uh, and grows every month with the period. So that is why it's so important that you eat anti-inflammatory foods. And anti-inflammatory foods are plant foods. They're rich in fiber, low in inflammation. So they basically open up your arteries in your heart and open up the arteries in your uterus. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important. And soya contains plant estrogens. And phytoestrogens are very important to reduce your risk of endometriosis and breast cancer. So even if you have a diagnosis of endometriosis or breast cancer, the more soya you eat, the lower is the risk of prostate cancer and breast cancer and endometriosis. Why? Because the phytoestrogens work only on the beta receptors of estrogen. While the ordinary estrogen that is there in chicken and fish and meat and, um, you know, in, in tissue, not fish so much, but in tissue, animal tissue that, and in our own bodies, is that that estrogen goes and blocks both alpha and beta. But the soya bean is so clever, it only works on the beta receptors. So what it does in your bone, it strengthens it and prevents osteoporosis. It makes your hot flushes better, but in your breast and in your uterus, it dampens things down so you don't get cancer. And It's a very clever bean and 20,000 studies have been done. And still there are so many myths about soya. It doesn't affect fertility. It helps fertility for anything. It, there's a 27% chance reduction in prostate cancer. There are huge studies in fertility uh, uh, sterility journal in the fertility journal as well as in the American journal of uh, clinical nutrition so there's so much of information you know china which is one of the most populated countries lives on soya <laughs> you know so we don't need to worry about our reproductive health and man boobs comes from the mammalian estrogen so when you drink dairy and when you eat these sort of foods that's when you get man boobs because that's what happens that estrogen cannot be broken down unlike phytoestrogens which basically are plant estrogens they are there in blueberries the same phytoestrogens that are there in uh, soya is there in chickpeas and kidney beans but it's just that soya has been given a bad press both by the dairy industry as well as just by confusion because it behaves slightly differently because the earlier you start as a child the more is the uh, benefit mm -hmm. so people say oh i took soya um, uh, tablets are not the same okay don't supplement with tablets because any of these supplements don't do the real job it's a reductionist approach mm -hmm. basically you can't take one element out of a 
nature's bounty and expect it to do the same that a soya bean that has got 10,000 other things and fiber and protein and vitamins and minerals and all the beautiful things. So my take home message for endometriosis always is that focus on eating a whole food plant-based diet, get rid of the junk foods, the ultra processed foods, the animal foods, uh, the excess oil from your diet uh, and add in the herbs and spices. They give you a lot of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory boosts. And there are plenty of fantastic websites and fantastic accounts that you can follow, which will teach you how to eat this way. And you will see the proof is in the pudding. You will realize if you do this for three weeks, you will see the difference almost within the next one or two menstrual cycles. So it's huge. You can't melt away uh, the big growths in the ovary and all that because that's hard uh, so that's why starting early is so important but it has a place no patient of mine comes with endometriosis and goes away without being explained to about the power of plants i've just had uh, one of my patients she's just delivered her baby uh, you know she was um, she was actually a pescatarian and then became a vegetarian and um, had moderate to severe endometriosis, came to see me. She then changed her diet to a completely whole food plant-based diet. Within three, four months, she got pregnant wow. and, and now she's just had her baby. So that's really nice to know. I operated on her uh, because she did have a chocolate cyst, uh, but it's amazing, amazing. So it's not that it's going to be a magical cure for everybody, but it's certainly give you you know, good quality of life or a better quality of life than you are experiencing. That much I can guarantee. And when you are doing that uh, way of eating, because remember the plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet is the only diet that has been proven to reverse heart disease. And heart disease is the biggest killer for men and women and more women die of heart disease than men. Okay. And so especially, and we know mental health is also uh, affected. So it's really important to understand that the same diet that protects your heart and protects your brain also protects your uterus. So, you know, there is no magic pill. There's no money to be made from eating broccoli. But, uh, and that's why nobody talks about it. Uh, you understand? Yeah. Uh, and I think doctors don't mean badly. It's just that they're ill-informed and they get their um, nutrition news also from the same sources that their patients get. So, you know, one day butter is back, one day ghee is back, next day butter is back that's because they don't know the science. And once you know the science, then it's very clear that we have evolved to eat plants. And the closer you move to eating whole plant foods, the better, the more benefits you're going to reap. That's the important thing. You know, people say, oh, I can't go 100% whole food plant-based. Nobody's asking you to do it. If you don't have any health problems, don't do it. Even if you have health problems, if you don't want to go 100%, don't. Mm. Just do 5%. 5% is better than zero. Do 10%. Start with breakfast. Just take your breakfast and swap the dairy milk uh, in your uh, and your uh, cereal full of sugar with um, porridge groats or jumbo oats or steel cut oats. Just do that with soya milk and, you know, oh, I don't like soya milk. Okay, then have oat milk, <laughs> you know. So it's not that if you just start with breakfast, then you feel more empowered. Then you make lunch. Lunch, have a big soup. Uh, vegetable soup or have uh, big potatoes with big beans and um, you know steamed vegetables and a large salad or just have a huge salad with hummus and some falafel that's baked 
or have uh, you know sweet potatoes with chickpea curry in the evening have brown spaghetti with a big um, you know celery tomato bean sauce or have a tofu stir fry or have i don't know a burger that is made with uh, you know beans or you can have the other uh, cheat meats and all but they're meant to be eaten as treats so you really want to be focusing on whole plant foods and you know it's such a joyous way of eating you don't miss anything there are 20000 plant species you know and so hankering after three animal species that we eat um you know it's just it doesn't make sense so the closer you move start with breakfast make lunch then maybe you have a whole uh, plant based monday and then you make it plant based tuesday and then suddenly you're off and running and thinking why did nobody tell me this pot of gold before this secret that everybody seems to be completely unaware and once somebody finds it all they want to do is talk about it so yeah you know it's absolutely amazing what you just said in terms of you know switching out milks that that is something that i generally just encourage a lot of people to to do especially people who are have finding that they're having bowel issues or you know irritable bowel syndrome and they're not able to sort of specify and you know they have a cereal every morning or have some milk in their tea you know, just switch it up, switch yeah. it to soy, you know, hazelnut milk, almond milk, and, you know, the possibilities with milks now that are plant-based. Exactly. Endless. Exactly. Um, exactly. And yeah. once you understand that you don't like soya, that's fine, you know, but soya is great for you in every form. But if you don't like soya, there are other options. So it's just understanding that, you know, you don't have to go 100%. It's great if you can. But if you can do, and I actually tell people, don't go cold turkey straight away. Mm. Watch the movies, watch Folks Over Knives, watch The Game Changers, go onto my website, read the books, uh, How Not to Die, and uh, you know Dr. Bernard's book, uh, Your Body in Balance, and things like that. Mm. So once you've read this information, you've empowered yourself with the knowledge, yeah. make a chart of what you eat on a daily basis. And then you look at what can the swaps you can make, where can you make it? And then slowly it becomes, oh, how do I add more color to my plate? If you don't want to get rid of your fish, make that piece of fish half and substitute it with a bunch of beans or, you know, edamame beans or uh, chickpea curry or, and, you know, simple things like that. Big salads. Your plate should be bursting with color. When they say eat the rainbow, it's really important. And it's not five a day. I know five a day is what they tell you here, but actually Canada and Japan, it's, about 10 to 13 portions. And one portion is what you can hold in your hand, mm. about 80 grams. So you want to aim for five, six different fruits in a day, especially berries, which are really important, blackberries, blueberries, if you can have access to it. You must shop late in the evening uh, so that you can get good deals. Uh, shop in open markets, uh, grow your own little herbs in a, in a little window uh, sill pot uh, so that you are saving money and buy in bulk, buy beans and rice and you know quinoa, all these things, whatever you want to enjoy and eat, potatoes, sweet potatoes, buy them in bulk. So that's what I tell university students and people who can't afford that you don't have to eat, um, you know, a fancy um, meal somewhere. You can just be eating what is really cheap, but absolutely healthy beans, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, herbs and spices. That's what you need to be eating. Simple, simple, simple stuff. Make small changes takes about three months for our gut bacteria to change. Mm. So that's why when people suddenly cut out things, they'll say, oh my God, I feel tired. I feel 
we that's because the the gut bacteria which we have about close to i think a I don't know, 100 trillion or something. They're huge numbers, much, much more than our own body. So these gut microbiome uh, bacteria are specific for each types of food. And so when you feed them the plant foods and the fiber which they munch on, they are known, those are the prebiotics. So prebiotics are fermented foods and all fruits and vegetables and beans and things. Those prebiotics are eaten by probiotics, which are the bacteria. So when you take a probiotic tablet or capsule, that's just a few colonies of bacteria. So that's not really going to help you if you don't change the way you eat. Yeah. And so prebiotics feed the probiotics, which is the bacteria, which then produce the short chain fatty acids, the butrates and all of the which are the postbiotics and that's what causes the health benefits and it boosts your immune function and you know suppresses your endometriosis and things so um, lifestyle medicine has a big role whether you have no condition some health condition women's health conditions like endometriosis whether you have you're worried that you may develop it because there's somebody in the family mm. or whether it is you have the condition and you want to have see whether you can have a better quality of life yeah yeah definitely and you know it's so important in terms of understanding and going on you know your own personal experience totally and you know when i was put on um the combined pill my already horrible painful periods became even more painful and the bleeding was worse and it was a situation where i was like well i'm not having surgery yet and i'm not having my fibroids removed yet but I don't think I'm going down this estrogen route. So let's remove the estrogen pill and let us also try to remove as much estrogen from my diet as possible. And let us see, and maybe we can try with progesterone, but yeah, let's try to limit the amount of estrogen that, that is coming into my body. And I love what you said about, you know, the, the soy being so selective in the kind of, um, you know, estrogens that are in there. And I think these kind of, this kind of information and understanding why your body reacts in a certain way then allows us to be able to make totally so, changes absolutely now obviously the control that you get with the combined pill is second to none yeah. and it also taking the pill for about four years halves your risk of ovarian cancer yes, womb cancer and so the important thing if you're going to be on the combined pill because you need for contraception it's one of the most effective yeah. uh, then you want to take it back to back mm -hmm. that's where the painful periods don't then become an issue yeah. anymore and so it's just understanding and suiting the right thing for the right person yeah. but without the knowledge what happens is you have myths and as a result you then deny yourself very important modern advances in medication uh, so because people have a fear of the combined pill or the mini pill or uh, the injection or they are taking it blindly without knowing that actually it's not really, they're not doing anything else. Yeah. And, and there's, I have a very detailed leaflet on Soya on my website. So if you, I don't know if you can link it all. Um, so I'll link it in the footnotes. If you just put my name in, it's www.neetubajekal.com. And of course, I'm also active on Instagram as at Dr. Neetubajekal yeah yeah it, it's amazing and thank you so much for coming on and just one last question i think there's been a lot about ginger and the use of ginger in terms of managing pain and um helping with metabolism as well what what can you say about about using ginger so there was a nice study by um uh, the doctors in iran mm. uh, and they they of course because you can't give people ginger and some placebo they put it as ginger powder into a pill okay, okay? 
because ideally you want to eat the ginger root, really the ginger, grate the ginger, put it into your lemon water, put it into your dishes. Uh, and we know that giving uh, eating ginger three to five days before your cycle uh, period starts uh, can make a significant difference to the period pain by again, the anti-inflammatory method. But again, I want your listeners to realize that it's not one superfood. Mm. So ginger is very good for morning sickness and uh, for uh, painful periods and nausea and chemotherapy and things. But as I said, it's what is it? It comes under the group of herbs and spices. So garlic and ginger, we know garlic is an anti-cancer and we know women with endometriosis have a higher chance of ovarian cancer. So, you know, once you understand that no dish of yours should pass into your lips without having some herbs or spices on it. So whether it's cilantro or coriander, whether it's parsley, basil, you know, thyme, rosemary, doesn't matter, mint, put some fresh herbs, put dried herbs, put lots of spices, turmeric, which is the, of all the anti-inflammatory turmeric uh, comes first and you want to always add a pinch of pepper to your turmeric in pepper boosts the uh, antioxidant power of curcumin by 2000%. And just adding any herb or spice to a dish, whether it's a dal that you make or whether it's to your baked potatoes, uh, when you add some herbs and spices, it increases the antioxidant power by 200%. Wow. So uh, first comes turmeric, then comes ginger and garlic, and then you have all the other uh, herbs and spices. So you want to increase cumin helps with digestion and bloating and diabetes and fenugreek. You know, you want to use a range of spices in your cuisine, in your diet. And that's where you rely on all these fantastic cuisines that we have, you know, Indian cuisine, and Nigerian cuisine, Asian, uh, uh, you know, Chinese and Japanese uh, foods and Ethiopian and, you know, the sky is the limit. And that's what I found when I turned completely plant-based. Wow, you mean all these foods were there? I had yeah. no idea at all. All I was doing was chomping on, you know, uh, cheese toasties, nice as they are, um, you know. And so, yes, there's vegan cheese. And yes, I sometimes have that. But really, I'd much rather have avocado on, on sourdough bread with a tofu scramble on the side. And so it's not that any food is bad, not that eggs and fish are bad for you. Um, they're not great for you. So because we only eat a certain amount of food, what you put in your mouth is really important. So every time you eat a donut, you're missing the chance of eating a big bowl of mango with some blueberries in it and some dark chocolate drizzled on it. Every time you eat... Uh, you know, an omelette, you're missing the chance of having tofu scramble. Every time you have a piece of fish, you're missing the chance of eating a big bowl of beans or chickpea curries and, and things like that. So it's not that any food is bad. It's, yes, some foods are worse than others. But when you eat plants, you get all the benefits. Uh, and that is something that really is important. To, once you understand it, once you know, you can't unknow. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Once you know, you can't unknow. Thank you so, so much for coming on this episode. It's been, it's, you know, and, and I knew that it was going to be amazing, but it's also been very eye-opening for me in terms of just, and you know, what you said about the cuisine that is available all around the world. And a lot of these cuisines that you've mentioned are so rooted in plants, in plant origin. And, you know, in terms of us going back to our roots and, you know, you were talking about it before we started recording about how the kind of foods our ancestors ate and, you know, how they lived and, you know, lived 
from you know eating from the soil and that that is just just so important and once we start making the right kind of changes then we empower others as well exactly. to make the right change too exactly exactly yeah. that's what it's all about is living the best life that you can you know that is kind and compassionate and that helps not just yourself but the people around you the children who are far away who are starving because of the choices that we make the animals that are suffering every single day because we haven't realized there is another way to eat and at the same time you're staying as disease free as possible so that you are there to help people around you i think that's really important for us thank you so much dr badger for coming on today's episode you're welcome Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before. Remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician. Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at a sliceofhealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction.